Tonight's session is uh, a conversation on mental health and well-being in a high-performance world. Uh, for many decades now in Australia, there's been a, a transfer of knowledge between uh, the corporate world and also the sporting world. Uh, in the past, we were borrowing off what was happening in the corporate world, and now that, uh, in many instances, the corporate world is borrowing off the high-performance sport world. The area of uh, mental health and well-being uh, is an area that has been uh, provided significantly significant uh, services and resources to professional athletes over the last couple of decades, and that is developed through player associations, and they receive significant funding to to support professional athletes in in their environments. It's something that hasn't been transferred to coaching at this stage. Um, and with only a couple of coach associations around the country, uh, there's been very little work done in Australia in the area of mental health and wellbeing support. Uh, tonight, we welcome uh, Nick Brax, who's the CEO of Mental Health Masterclass, and his colleague, Lucian Oakhill. Uh, Football Coach Australia has partnered with Ment Mental Health Masterclass, um, and Nick and his colleagues have kindly provided 100 registrations to their to their program, uh, which will be making available to um, coaches around Australia in coming weeks. We're also joined by Dr. Mark Jones, uh, Chief Medical Officer of Football Federation Australia, Dr. Deidre Anderson, the Wellbeing Manager of the 2021 Olympic softball team, and also the Chair of the Rugby League Players Association, and Dr. Tra Craig Duncan, uh, the Founder and CEO of Performance Intelligent Agency. I won't go into any detailed uh, introductions because there's a, a, a lot of storytelling in tonight's session uh, and throughout that storytelling, um, they'll be introducing themselves and their roles in supporting elite athletes and coaches. So without further ado, I'd like to hand over tonight to, to Lucian uh, to take the session. Thanks, Lucian. Alrighty, so uh, welcome everybody. Thank you for taking the time out to um, come and join us. I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump straight into the first uh, slide and, and and really just go to the point of why are we here and really I've sort of coined a phrase and we've coined a phrase awareness over action and there's, there's, a, there's a heap of great organisations out there that are raising awareness and providing support and resources to help us with the, the management of our mental health. Um, look it's a given in the current environment it's obviously very topical we're not quite sure what we're going back out to into the world um, when we finally get to be able to be together and do these kind of things. Um, However, it keeps coming back that there's still not enough conversations happening in our workplaces, our communities, our sporting clubs. Uh, and if we don't have conversations, we don't address the stigma. And, and those of us, um, and I'm sure there's many of us that have had low level mental health challenges or, or more serious uh, mental health challenges, we tend to live with it inside ourselves and um, it doesn't get out. And it's noticeable in, in all walks of life, but uh, one of my interests through my own experience is helping a lot of young athletes and kids work their way through their problems whilst there's a really high expectation on them. And I've noticed it is very prevalent with, with the generation of athletes, uh, mainly footballers I work with coming through. Um, so we urge everybody to, uh, to sort of really dig into this and, and sit there. Moments of it might be a bit uncomfortable. If you're feeling like it's stirring stuff up or it's triggering anything inside yourself, then the worst thing to do is sit there and just sort of descend into feeling worse call a family member, um, call a friend if there's no one in the house or even go and see a neighbour. But, but I'd, please, if something kicks off, just shout out, send a message to the chat room, um, chase me down on LinkedIn 
So what is tonight about? It's really a call to action. So why? I'm going to flick over now and I'm going to flick to Nick and he's going to tell you a little bit about the stats around mental health currently in Australia. Great. Thank you, Lucian. And uh, thank you for having us here tonight. I hope everyone can hear me okay as well. Yep. Um, <clears throat> all good. Uh, so, yeah, I'm just going to go into some stats and we'll go into more detail about other parts of the program and mental health and sharing our stories in a second. But um, just to begin with, you know, here's just a few um, stats around uh, mental health. At any given time, one in five Australians have a mental illness. Um, this is a big one. You know, suicide is the biggest killer of young Australians. So more people die, more young people die from suicide than uh, in car accidents. It's a really, really big issue. Uh, with men, suicide is a growing issue. And we need to educate and be taught that it's okay as men to, to speak about our emotions and understand where to go and how to do that, which we'll be touching on through tonight's talk. Um, around 15% of Australians will be affected by an anxiety disorder within a 12-month period, and anxiety is only growing with, you know, the fast pace of the world, technology, social media, everything, you know, the just huge amount of information we're consuming every day. 54% um, of people with mental illness don't have access to treatment. This is a big one, and this is why we're doing a lot of the work we're doing with Mental Health Masterclass in creating digital programs and trying to get really good quality information to a large number of people because there's problems with affordability, there's problems with access, there's problems with people, even when they do have the access or can afford it, actually feeling like it's okay to seek help. So there needs to be solutions where they can do that in the comfort of their own home. Um, depression is the third highest uh, burden of disease in Australia, uh, as well as globally. It's an epidemic globally, so it's, it's a big issue. Um, a few other points here, meditation and exercise in many, many cases can be seen as being as effective as antidepressants. Um, it's not to say that antidepressants aren't uh, valid, but there needs to be more research around that. We need more guidance around that. Uh, so it, it's really, again, all of this comes back to education. Um, the number of men who die by suicide in Australia is nearly double that of the road toll. Um, there's a few other statistics here, 10, 10 to 15% of older adults experience depression, approximately 10% experience anxiety. Uh, the cost to the economy is about 60 billion every year. Uh, so, you know, these, these are some pretty heavy stats. And like I said, we'll go into more detail about uh, this whole issue and we'll try and we're gonna really try and give, well, we are going to give some personal storytelling to, to make it more engaging and relatable and give you, you know, our own our own experience of what we've, we've been through and why we're doing what we do. So I'll um, hand it back to you, Lucian. Thanks, Nick. Um, lived experience, our stories. So I'm gonna um, essentially give you a potted history of the first 45 years of my life in about six minutes. Um, and I've backed myself in to do this. Most people that know me and any of those out there that are watching that know me will say I'll do it easy, but it's the first time I've probably told the story from start to finish. Um, I've always shared bits and pieces of it. So again, um, bear with me. Uh, shout out if you're not feeling great. Um, to put some context around it, um, from the outside looking in throughout my life, everything has looked great. So there's, there's, it's, this, is, this is one of the challenges. So essentially, I was, a, I was born in the, the late 60s or 1969 in the UK um, into an emotional and fairly volatile household. I'm not going to say there wasn't love in the household because there was, but there was, there was challenges. Um, I grew up in a country pub. Uh, 
I had a very strict father who was a kid. I feared he was from a different generation and um, things were never good enough. I was never able to deliver um, as a child what was, uh, what was expected of me. Um, and that left me perpetually anxious. Um, the one thing we had, the two things I had, I guess, we had a, we had a pub and we had a fantastic kitchen. So my mum was one of the, the founders of the gastro pub industry, I guess, if you like, and was a self-taught chef who became very decorated. So from the age of nine or 10, my interest had really gravitated to two things, um, football and food. Football was not something my father believed in in the 80s. Um, he was a rugby man, although I loved, I loved my rugby. Football was, was everything to me and my grandfather to put some football um, into the story. He was a founder, a founder of, a, of a club called Whiteley from the Ishmian League in the UK in 1946, which to this day is still there and hopefully post-COVID will be. But, but most of my best childhood memories um, and some of my teen and adult ones, which we'll get to, uh, were spent at that club initially trying to play when I could. But I was restricted by my dad from playing and it hindered what I thought was the potential for me to go on. So at 15, um, I wasn't a great student. Uh, in modern terms, they'd have probably found a way to deal with me, but I was disruptive. I was all of the, the things that um, generally that's not a good student. You'll go nowhere at 15. I decided I had to get out and I went up to the West End of London. I got myself a job. I decided I'm not going to be a footballer. I love my food. I'm going to cook. So I got myself an apprenticeship at 15 and a couple of days and I was thrown into the cut and thrust of a West End five-star hotel kitchen with the better part of 200 crew and guys of all ages from 16, 15, 16, 17, 18, up to 35, 40, 50. Um, I was identified quite quickly. I'd had a good background with my mum and a good schooling. So I progressed through the ranks quite quickly and I was identified as a talent. And that was a bit of a double-edged sword because I was very young to be stepping over people to get ahead and get advanced. Um, and the further I went, the more the pressure started to rise. So that thoughts of those anxieties, that fear, that doubt, um, everything was going on and to compound that um, in the 80s kitchens and I think uh, you know there's a certain TV chef who ran some raves who ironically was an ex-footballer before he did his knee and then went into kitchens um, basically uh, it was industrial abuse of, 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 a, of a scale that would be unthinkable now and many things I experienced and saw I think employers employees and team members would go to jail um, Having done that, I still progressed. I, I, I went through, but I was, I was riddled with self-doubt, self-loathing, negative self-talk, anxiety about the past, anxiety about the future, anxiety about what I was doing, worrying about every plate going on into a dining room and was someone going to like it? So a piece of me went out there every time I did it. A bit like from a coach's perspective, you set up a team, you set up a strategy, they're representing you. Um, the feedback is instant. The result goes your wrong way, a plate comes back. A food journal writes you up for one bad review. It destroys you. The media pick up on what you're doing. They've got no idea about your tactical plan, why you're playing the way you're playing, and, and, and it's free license for whatever agendas. Um, so it's pretty intense. Obviously, then alcohol and various other bits and pieces became a large way of my um, management tool, if you like, because I didn't want to give up and I wanted to carry on. But I got to 92, or the end of 91, and I was seven years in the trade and I was exhausted and I said, I need out. So I stepped out of the food game in, in, in the UK and I wanted out from the UK in general, just to, to clear my head. And I had a family member in Oz, uh, my big brother. So I came to Oz for a holiday and what, 28 years later, I'm still here. Um, 
came to Sydney for a holiday because I was burnt out and I was needing a break. But then I was riddled with doubt. So within two weeks, I was back in a kitchen. I was at the Ramada in, in Sydney and I was working again. And I needed the work to validate me, but it was a rinse repeat cycle. Um, doubt, fear, stress, anxiety. But on the outside, everything looked great, having the best life, but a long way from home. So I doubled down and taken myself 12,000 miles away from everything I knew. Um, again, again, I had, a, I had a reasonable level of success. Um, I did some pretty good stuff, but I think if I'm truly honest, I self-sabotaged a lot of my potential through the doubt, through the uncertainty. So in 99, I fell out of the industry in between jobs and um, landed up falling into, I guess, what we call the corporate world now, or the business world. Um, fell into a series of roles, learned about transferable skills and things that you learn in one industry that you can take to another. So I, in the last, oh, I guess in the last 15 years or so, maybe a bit longer now, 99, I'd say 20 years, I've had roles in, in, in logistics and operation. I've, I've had direct sales roles where we've driven by revenue on a monthly basis. Um, more recently, I've had sales management roles where I'm responsible for my team and sales and operations management where I'm responsible for the output and my team and the revenue line. So it's been a period through my life uh, up to 45 years, fast forward to October 2015, where everything revolves around intensity and drive and hitting targets and meeting expectations and, and I guess giving of yourself and appearing to be very confident, possibly arrogant, conceded a number of things. Um, so we get to October 2015 and I had a week where I was feeling particularly rough, um, but I'd suffered a lot of chronic pain and, and had a lot of inflammation perpetually. So I kind of just passed it off. But on the Friday of that week, I had a, a 45 to 50 medical check, which I went to, told the GP. Next thing I know, I was on a gurney. They were doing an ECG. The readings were all fine. My GP, bless him, said, I'll just take a blood test, um, go back to work, I'll expedite it quickly. If there's any problems, I'll call you. Um, 5.30 came round, 6 o'clock came round, no call from the GP. Friday night, wrapping up, off to Dr. Dan's. Mr. Murphy to pick up a, a bottle of red for the weekend and home. Driving down Dandenong Road, for those of you that know Melbourne, 20 past 6, I get a phone call. Um, where are you? I'm in my car. You need to pull over. You're having a heart attack. Um, big, big moment. Landed up getting home because I was a couple of k's away from the home. In hindsight, I shouldn't have done. I put my wife under undue stress, um, which is really difficult um, to have done. But we got down to the hospital. I got taken in, um, took blood tests. My troponin levels were through the roof. I was correct in saying I'd been in pain and, and struggling for a week because the, the readings were off the scale. So checked into the Alfred, um, particularly busy weekend. I then had to wait for five days for an angio to then find out on the following Wednesday, which was a, which was a week before my 46th birthday, that a secondary artery was 100% occluded. The four or five days in there was just compounding. Was I gone? Was I completely congested? What was on? So a lot of time to think and worry. Um, but I got fixed. I got, I got stented. Um, blockage was clear. Everything was fine. Sent home ready for rehab, um, all good, good to go, run on, wrong. Um, I found a new anxiety disorder to put into my locker that I didn't know about before called health anxiety. And the easiest way to describe that is it's like going down a dark alley of a night time and feeling like you're gonna get clobbered, but having that feeling inside your body 
every minute of the day when you're walking around, is it going to happen again? Will it happen with my wife or my kids in my car? Am I going to collapse? So I went back to my office. I went back to work, everything appearing normal, walking into my office, repetitive panic attacks. Um, reactions to medications, sought some help, PTSD, diagnosis. At least I had something to hang on to there to work with, picked up meditation and other bits and pieces. Um, so it was going all right, but we're still struggling. But I think to anybody looking at me from the outside, they'd say I'd had a rough experience and I was going all right. Get to September, um, start experiencing a lot of pain in my groin and my abdomen. Um, wow, not great, not feeling good. Go off to the doctors, worried it could be something really nasty. It turns out to be a, a reasonably large tear in the right side of my abdominal, vertical tear in my abdominal wall. So it's a pretty significant hernia. Um, what I will tell you, health anxiety, first thing, back to Dr. Google. Um, Dr. Google is not your friend when you're not well and you're trying to learn about things because then I doubled down on all the other fears and started learning about strangulated hernias and the risk they present if they happen um, whilst waiting for surgery. So, um, and the, the story gets, like, there's another layer to this story, so I'm going to let everybody know just as a little bit of a trigger warning. It, it gets a little bit more intense. And then we come out the other side. Um, hernia's due over Christmas holidays, so I'm perfect. I can get it done the Christmas holidays and I can go back to work in the new year and my wife and my daughter's down from Brisbane and they can look after me. What am I thinking? I can get my hernia fixed while I'm on leave over Christmas. Anyway, cancelled. Um, put out for another few weeks, so I have to enjoy the Christmas as best as I can. But I get a cancellation comes through and on January the 12th, I think it was, I, I get the day to go and get my... my um, hernia fixed, go to the hospital. I'm in there for 48 hours. I come out the next day, I convalesce. I go and walk 4K, 4Ks on the beach the, the, the day after that. I'm feeling pretty good. Um, working towards the recovery, a lot of meditating, meditating, a lot of reading, starting to rebuild from the experiences. The Friday of that week, um, I've had a week off. I'm ready to go back to work on the Monday. I say to my wife, I'll come and meet you and you, your mum's on the other side of town for dinner and then we'll come home and that'll get me out of Mentone where we were living at the time um, for the first time in a week. Friday morning it's tipping down with rain. I decide not to go, but at 11 o'clock the sun comes out. So I decide to take the walk to the train station. I get on the train station. Um, I've got to go to Pasco Vale. I stop in the city to go buy a book and grab a coffee. I'm walking down Swanston Street. I'm walking up Swanston Street, heading north and uh, one o'clock on a Friday, go figure, I'm never in the city on a one o'clock on a Friday. And I see a squad car coming down the road with four policemen hanging out of it saying, get off the road, get off the road. And I'm going, I know curb crawling's a thing, but I, th I thought like, that's a bit rich, what's going on? The next thing I look behind my shoulder and there is a wave of thousands of people just running towards me, up towards the intersection of the Burke Street Mall and Swanson Street. As I look and I start moving forward, I realise I can't go backwards, but then I see coming through the footpath a Burgundy Commodore and people just parting this Commodore coming through the, 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 the road. I get to the, the intersection of, uh, of Burke and Swanston, look behind me, there's nowhere to go. Look ahead of me, people are going around the corner. And I said, there's the super tram, there's the tram tracks. I'm gonna go across the tram tracks and get out, get out of the way. The next thing I see, I look to the right, um, the Commodore has gone out around the sculptures there and is on the tram tracks with its wheels spinning probably felt like five feet away, maybe five metres, 10 metres, 15 metres away, but enough to see somebody hunched over a steering wheel 
with very beady eyes. Um, I've left with, I'm left with nothing but to run. So three things go through my mind. The, 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 the first one is um, I'm dead. The second one is it's okay. I know my wife and my kids love me. Um, and the third one is, is I don't want to look back because I don't want to see it. Uh, I did say to Glenn that this might fire me up a little bit. So I'm all right. It's just it, sometimes it creeps up on me. So I got in front of the tram that was stationary going the other way. And then as I got in front of the tram, I looked down and I saw the fender of the, 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 the Burgundy Commodore so much so I could see the clear coat peeling off the right wing and the bonnet. Um, and it went on and, and it went on and I went, that was weird. Did he just try and hit me and then, then look? Um, the other events unfolded and, and, and all of that is history now and it's well documented. So, so I do, and we do have to take a moment for those that didn't make it. Um, and for the families that, that um, were left with that loss and the carnage of that particular day. Um, so that took me up to 2015. And, and look, this, this, you know, it's good things come out of things that happen. And, and the impact for me was is that life is really, really short. And that I've been worrying about my health for hours. And I've been stressing about what everybody thinks of me for years, all of my life. And it can all go like that. It can happen. So the reflection after I've wandered around shocked for a few hours was is that I actually need to change the way I live. And I don't need to live like this, but I need to get help to do that. So the outcome was I basically started um, seeking out help and I started learning about what the things were. And that wasn't comfortable and it's still not comfortable. And finding a new way to live and, and being a better person in terms of staying on top. Um, I've landed up being able to help people and people you wouldn't expect that have problems. I've landed up, I think candor and honesty tends to get people to come to you. I, I love my sport and I love the, the well-being elements or the benefit, like the impact of high performance and, and mental health and well-being. And I've been lucky to work with a number of lads in, in NPL, in A-League and, and some other sports as well and share their stories. And, and it's really precious to me because I'm an old guy. Um, who's able to say to them and, and to any old guy, young guy, lady, girl, boy, doesn't matter that it's okay to talk. It's actually okay to share the story. And it does take a burden off. And, and we're, gonna, we're gonna talk about how I manage my way through and the changes shortly, but that's kind of, that's me in a nutshell. So I might throw over to Nick to get, uh, get onto his little story. Great. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Lucien, for, for sharing that. and. Uh, it's a powerful story and you know, I think you should be really proud as well for, you know, Thanks, jumping in the deep end. He's been, Lucian's been, you know, working with me on these projects for quite some time and he's really thrown himself into it and, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. And the reason the two of us are sharing these stories as part of this session is, uh, you know, part of this whole mental health um, change and uh, showing vulnerability is really part of how we make a big change and, and let people know it's okay to talk about it. It is okay to share our own stories. It's okay to go through hardship. Everyone does. Uh, a lot of people bottle it up and we wouldn't know. And uh, that's when problems can happen when it gets bottled up for too long and someone explodes. So we need to know it's okay to talk about it. Um, I, I got into this area through my own personal experience with, with mental health. Uh, as far back as I can remember, I sort of suffered from overthinking, OCD, obsessive thinking, um, and it came out in many different ways. Uh, luckily, I was able to channel all of it into my 
compulsion and obsession as a kid to be a professional athlete. And uh, that was really my ticket to popularity, I guess, because I um, wasn't growing in other areas. I was really, because of this obsessive thinking, I was isolating myself. I actually um, was training at such a level as a 11 year old kid up until about 16, 17, training six, seven hours a day um, that I stunted my growth, my physical development. And, um, you know, it was an addiction looking back I was doing it because I had this compulsive thinking that I didn't know how to deal with. And that was how it came out. And it led to a whole lot of other problems because I didn't socially develop. I thought I was afraid of my own shadow. I couldn't work out what was wrong with me. Um, and it, it, it really led to, you know, a, a, me spending a good part of my twenties having to work through these issues that were, were sitting there. Um, I guess I'll just quickly share the first sort of story I remember of that obsessive thinking, I guess, because it is related to sport. Um, I was actually more AFL is what I grew up with. And that's what I originally wanted to do. And I was um, obsessed with Gary Ablett senior as a kid. And he was my hero. He was often referred to as God. And uh, I remember in religion class, I was probably, you know, seven years old, we were asked to draw a picture of God. And I drew Gary Ablett kicking a, a goal in football. Um, but as a matter of, matter of fact, in my mind, that was God. And then not long after that, I was at a Geelong game um, at Optus Oval playing Carlton. And I was there with my uncle and I saw Gary Ablett kick up this divot of grass. And uh, as soon as the siren went, I was sort of hanging over the fence. I'm like, I have to get this grass that touched Gary Ablett's boot. And as soon as the siren went, I jumped over and, um, sort of weaved through security, grabbed this grass, uh, luckily didn't get arrested, um, took the grass home and I planted it and I'd get up every day, I'd water the grass and I'd uh, sit on the windowsill before my parents got out of bed and I'd eat this grass and I'd pray, please make me as good at football as Gary Ablett. And I continued doing that for quite a while until sort of that grass was dying and I was eating, you know, this dead grass and the parents were a bit, a bit concerned. Um, but, you know, that was the first sort of story I can remember of that really obsessive thinking coming out. And it translated, as I said, into this compulsion of wanting to play AFL, of training at that level, my body breaking down when I finished up at school. And from that point onwards, going through a very, very difficult time and being very lucky to come out of it alive, I had not touched alcohol until I was 18. Um, when at that same time, my body had, my knees were completely busted I just couldn't continue training and uh, that coincided with me finishing at high school not having developed socially not knowing what I wanted not um, valuing myself and feeling like I wasn't worthy unless I could excel as an athlete and that all being taken away and I couldn't cope I'd been overseas on a gap year I came back I had started a university course I dropped out of that and basically as soon as I discovered alcohol I started abusing it overnight that became the new catalyst to cope with this obsessive thinking it replaced the exercise and i would be it very quickly it turned into drinking five six nights a week going out drinking uh just wanting to you know punish myself wanting to drink until i could stop thinking and treating it the same way i treated competing in sport just pushing myself to that level and uh looking back like i said earlier i'm um feel very lucky I came out of that whole thing alive. I mean, I, I'd been out and um, at one point had a really bad car crash with my best friend in the car. And uh, I was going about 80 Ks an hour along a main road. Um, 
I went to turn around to go home and wasn't thinking clearly as I did it. I thought I had something spark off in my head and thought I've got to go home, went to turn, hit a traffic island and the car just spun out of control and wrapped around a tree. Um, the side that got crushed in half was the side my friend's head was facing. So had he not jolted up, he would have been killed instantly. Um, luckily, we all came out of it okay. But, um, you know, it was a pretty severe incident. And there were many, many incidents like that where um, I was very lucky that it wasn't wasn't worse. And it was the kind of thing that I was hiding this from everyone. And um, My parents, people around me knew there was a problem. They didn't know how big. And I was always fabricating how big of an issue it was. I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't actually know I was depressed. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I felt ashamed of it. And it wasn't until I got to a point where I was almost catatonic. I couldn't get out of bed. Um, my mum had to drag me to go and see a psychologist because she just knew, you know, at this point I couldn't hide it. And uh, I reluctantly went and found out in that first session that I was severely depressed. And it was a shock. And I thought, but I'm strong and, you know, I shouldn't suffer from this. I know I can push myself to these levels and, you know, that's weak. And um, I had all these emotions going through my head. Um, but almost instantly at the end of that session, that turned to just complete relief because I was actually identifying what the issue was. And I was working with this psychologist and getting told that um, and being shown examples of people who had been through similar things and come out the other end. And I was being told this is just the same way, you know, if we break our arm, we, you know, we need it to heal. If we've got a problem in our mind, we need to fix it. We need to, there's things we can do to fix that. And I was being, you know, taught this and, and it was, it was a huge relief. And I remember telling my best friend not long after what I'd been going through and just shaking and being petrified that she would judge me, um, thinking she would never look at me the same again. It was the opposite. She was actually so supportive and one of the catalysts for me getting through this whole period, um, which is a, one of the things that to this day has been really important for me. It's having, um, just having people, a couple of people close to you that you can, uh, talk to every day and talk openly to and, and give them the same thing. And I've still got that to this day. And I highly recommend that just having these relationships where you can call someone up and say, Hey, um, I'm overwhelmed. I'm, you know, offload what's going through your head. Sometimes it might only take 30 seconds or a minute and, and, you know, put it back into context. So, uh, not long after that, I enrolled in this university course and we had to do, um, this was a business entrepreneurship course. We had to do 15 oral presentations in the first semester of this course. And uh, at this time I was too, I was so shy and afraid of my own shadow. I could barely talk one-on-one -on -one with someone. Um, the thought of talking in front of everyone was my worst nightmare. And I was about to pull out of the course, but because I had this team around me by this point that knew pulling out of the course wasn't a matter of wasting time. This was my health at, at stake because I had been doing nothing for so long, abusing alcohol and I needed to have some structure and purpose. So I had to stick to doing it and I would literally be vomiting before going out and doing these talks in front of five people because my mind was just going at a million miles an hour saying, Nick, you're pathetic. You're not good enough. You've got no value. You don't deserve to be here. No one wants to hear from you know what you're talking about. And I'd have a physical reaction and vomit and um, I'd be standing there and I'd have it written word for word. I'd be shaking and mumbling every word. And um, I may as well have been speaking a different language, but I got through the talks. And by the end of that course at university, I was actually comfortable doing these talks. And it taught me the biggest lesson I've ever learned, which is a pretty simple lesson, but it's something a lot of us neglect to, you know, really grasp and take on. And that's that what our mind tells us. And 
um, these thoughts that we have and what we think is not always the truth. And we often, you know, will be our own worst enemy telling ourselves, feeding ourselves these negative stories. So it's really not about stopping the mind from thinking. We can't. We're going to think about negative things, positive things, indifferent things. It's about being able to step out of it. And that's what it taught me in my mind would be saying all of these incredibly negative um, stories and I'd be able to dismiss it and say, no, I know that's not true. I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to do it anyway. And the more you do that, eventually those thoughts become disarmed and they become a, a whisper in your head. and They don't have that power over you. And that really led to all of the work that I do now. Ironically, it led to me part of a big chunk of my career being in public speaking. And um, it opened my, the door, you know, more importantly to wanting to do this work in raising awareness about mental health. Um, so there's a lot more to the story and sort of, I won't go into the whole thing right now because we just, you know, we don't have enough time, but um, it, it, it led me down the path that I'm on today and um, opened up so many doors. And uh, the second part of this that I want to touch on with you guys um, is relating to this TED talk I gave last year, actually, um, which was about centered around suicide. So a heavy topic, something that isn't pleasant to talk about, but something that's very important that is that we do talk about. Um, the statistic is that, roughly one person around the world commits suicide every 40 seconds. So it's pretty severe. You know, this is a um, really, really big problem, um, as I was touching on in those statistics earlier. And we need to talk about this more. We need to understand that this is something that does affect everyone. And it really comes back to education, it comes back to understanding where we can go, what we can do, how we can look after ourselves, even simple things like meditating, exercising, just having daily habitual uh, routines that, you know, are going to help us look after our mental well-being in the same way that we do uh, with our physical well-being. And in the sporting world, you know, it's a really important thing. And I think um, relating back to this, you know, coaches are really mentors. And, in you know, in that, that area, that's an opportunity to, to really give uh, – athletes guidance and the education that we unfortunately do not get through school and often don't get through parenting. Um, so it's really important that that is, you know, placed, there's more emphasis placed on that. Um, like I said, there's more, it's so important that there is in general, just a broader education around this. Everyone should be taught about mental wellbeing. Uh, again, that's what Lucian and myself are doing with this mental health masterclass program. It's, uh, predominantly in a digital format and it's developed in a way that it can be accessed by everyone. It's just about educating, simple education and simple tools that we can all do on, on a daily basis. So I yeah, couldn't speak, I couldn't, I can't really express more strongly how important it is that we do take notice of it. And even if we don't feel like we're at risk or that we have an issue, we can one conversation can go such a long way. So it's about everyone, you know, doing, taking that little step forward. That's how we make a collective change. So, um, you know, we'll have time for questions. Are we going into, yeah, I'll hand it back to, to you guys now. I think we might go into some questions or. We've I'll, got... call, um, I'll call the expert panelists in to tell their stories, Nick, if that's okay. Yep. Uh, so I'd like to bring Deidre Anderson into the conversation and Deidre, uh, people would know you as a, 
as a high-profile mentor to elite athletes uh, since the early 90s in the work uh, that you did at the Victorian Institute of Sport and the Australian Institute of Sport. You've worked with a number of Olympians over a period of time. And, uh, and most recently, um, you've been the wellbeing manager for the Olympic softball team. You've been based overseas in Japan and America, qualifying for the Olympic Games. Uh, congratulations on that. Uh, and also in your role as chair of uh, Rugby League Players Association. I'm sure that the storytelling that Lucian and Nick have told resonates with you in the work that you've done with athletes and coaches. Um, so if you wouldn't mind just elaborating on that. Sure. I think uh, as you were both speaking, my, my head's just nodding, nodding because I guess the last 20 years I've, I've spent working in this space the fundamental question that just keeps coming up between coaches and, and athletes themselves is who, who am I in this world? And obviously the sports world um, creates an enormous amount of ten tension between your authentic self and, and who you need to be to survive in this world of sport. And that I've seen many incidences where self-identity gets very much um, suppressed uh, a real lack of life skills as a, as a result of, um, of trusting and expanding, as you said, Nick, that the social sort of connections that are important. And as a consequence, many athletes just foreclose on even thinking about life outside of, of sport. And, and, and then if they go on and be a coach, they've pushed it back even further and um, you know, can spend most of their life really just in this vortex of a a world called sport and the consequences that I've seen and, and work with a lot are athletes ending up on prescription drugs, gambling and, and other serious uh, addictions. I've watched probably um, a half a dozen athletes tither between life and, and death and, and as a consequence it's just driven me both academically and, and personally to try and understand these tortured minds that, that often result in this uh, lack of authenticity around who, who we really are as a, as a person. And consequently, that fear and anxiety starts to manifest itself so much as a, a, as a connection to, to the world that you, you shun even getting to know yourself because fear becomes I guess the filter for everything that you try and do. So change and, and, and new things in your life become incredibly difficult. But on the flip side of that, I've come to realize that we've all got a very strong inbuilt intelligence system within us that requires us to really see fear as a, as a question and helping athletes and coaches to understand that and find that purpose and and manifest the, I guess, the potential and the authentic self that they need to be, um, has opened up opportunities for them to have unconditional relationships with people and enable them to, to really understand the importance of having a scaffold. And I often say this to, to athletes and to coaches that it's like a stool. If you live your life with just one leg on that stool, then it's going to be vulnerable and and always put you in a you know in a state of anxiety. Two can you know minimise that a little bit. Three you're starting to get a bit of stability. But four, having four really conscious purposes in your life really does give you that that stability. And I guess the the 
concluding point is I work very much on, on three principles and that's breathing, relaxation and posture become critical to helping people work through this. And my question is always, um, you know, around what's the most important thing in your life and ideally they'll say there's sport or, or something else. And if they do, it's just a matter of asking them to hold their breath and then answer that question because breathing is a fundamental uh, component of, of helping us to reconnect with everything about us. So that's, that's been my, I guess, my journey. And the more I, I know about this, this area, the less I, I think I know. And it just continues to drive me to, to try and um, almost circumnavigate people getting into these situations to start with. Thanks, Dee. Uh, and Dr. Craig Duncan, uh, many people are here on the uh, on the seminar would uh, know of Craig's work uh, with the Socceroos and in football. And Craig, you've uh, in your role um, with uh, PIA and in the role that you do with a number of uh, coaches around the world and their athletes. Um, if you just wouldn't mind touching on on your story and the work that you're doing with coaches at the moment. Yeah. Uh... Thanks first uh, to Nick and Lucian for those wonderful stories. And it's always so good to hear from Deidre as well. Um, the work that she has done uh, throughout Australian sport is, uh, is well documented, but it's very much for people in football to go and read and, and see what she has done. It's some amazing, uh, amazing effects she's had on people. Uh, look, I think over the last number of years, uh, I had an issue in 2013 where I, I won't go into that here, but I had a near-death experience with heart as well, so, uh, Lucy, and I really resonate with that. And it start, and it's at the time I thought it was the worst thing that ever happened to me, and it's actually been the best thing that ever happened to me because it gave me perspective on life, and also in sport, um, I think we we have a real fo uh, problem with the the locus of control and what we can control and what we can't control. And so much of what we do is outside our control. I think for the coaching fraternity watching this, I'm, I'm, I'm adamant that we need to make a difference to sport. And particularly, you know, I work across sports, but you know, my sport is football. I think we've identified the issues with players' mental health and we're starting to make progress there. But my bigger concern is for coaches and my fraternity, the high performance staff, where in, in my role now, where I consult uh, to numerous places and I go there, I find myself supporting more what is actually happening and, and the livelihoods of these people rather than uh, actually from, often from a technical basis. And <clears throat> one of the issues is I, I don't believe human resources or you know, people and culture or, or that sort of exists in sport, and this is wrong. And I applaud the Football Coaches Association for actually taking a stance about this because, look, we live in a lifestyle where uh, our employment status is, is, is really difficult. Um, we don't know what the longevity of that is. Loneliness, which has now been identified as a major issue in respect to employment and with remote working, you look at loneliness in respect to coaching. So many coaches will travel for, for jobs and they can't take their family with them because they don't know how that long that job will, will exist. I think many coaches really <clears throat> uh, can be, I think our courses need to be really focused on strategy and how to set this up and, and how to actually, I don't believe in work-life balance, I believe in, in having a life balance because 
for people involved in sport, very much of it, it is a, it's a lifestyle choice. So we need to be able to balance that. You know, we get into this because most of us exercise, but I, I travel around and, and very few people in high performance sport actually do exercise uh, because they don't have the time. And often they don't have the time because they haven't got that strategy in place to know when to stop. And so in some of my experiences working in different cultures and, um, and different national teams, and you know, you might work with coaches that uh, love to work late at night and want you around at, at all times. And then, you know, in camp situations where sleep is a major issue and is often compromised, then decision-making, all our thought processes uh, look different through blurry eyes. So um, most recently I, I uh, was, was with a team where this was a major issue and was able to get the entire, entire staff to actually start you know, making up this sleep deprivation with naps in the afternoon. Simple things like that, taking time out, Deirdre, like you said, with breathing, meditation, Lucy, and I think you touched on that, involving exercise as well. We need to do this because it's a major, major issue. I know a number of instances where there has been suicide in my business. I, the, the statistics in respect to divorce is um, <clears throat> incredible in this business. Um, and, and we live in this, you know, we've got to be tough and we've got to be all this sort of stuff and coaches leading the way and it, it's a problem and we need to address it. Organizations need to address it. We need to be on the front foot and we need to demand better because as far as I see, sport and organizations how they structure themselves they're stuck in the in the dark ages and even now with COVID-19 you you see people not being paid but who's looking after the players I can tell you in all the organizations I work the, the people that are looking after the players are the high performance staff and the coaches even though their salaries might have been taken away they're not going to give that up and um, so I think I think we really need to start uh, making making a noise from above and it needs it needs to change because it's not right and uh and i think we've done well with players and we need to keep doing that but now now it's for the people looking after the players and like i say who's managing those that manage thanks very much craig before we uh, nick and lucian before we go to to mark uh, mark jones from ffa just a question maybe dv if i could direct this one to you um do you have any recommendations on strategies for protecting yourself from secondhand trauma, taking on board the burdens of others who come to us for help? And you'd be experiencing this traveling with your softball team around the world, for example. Yeah, look, I think the first thing is that to just remember you don't have to solve someone's problems. Often they just want to talk and they want someone to listen. And a process that I always try and do is just remind myself of that because if you listen and take on board and start to judge and try and fix then you don't help anyone so it's really important to listen and try and understand the people that they have around them and their abilities to try and um, say take on some referrals but yeah just listen don't try and fix or judge thanks Dave. Uh, can I just call Ian Greener off, off mute to ask your question, please, Ian? Okay, thanks, thanks, Glenn. Terrific stories. Thank you very much for your time. I've always believed that telling stories is a very powerful way of getting a message across. Uh, but my question is, currently we are conducting school online 
and we're we're trying to get our footballers to conduct self-training sessions, solo training sessions. And I'm just wondering, the, the feedback we're getting from, from parents is that the anxiety level of the students is starting to go higher and higher. What strategies would you recommend that we should adopt to help our young students through these difficult times, but also with our footballers, our young footballers, how, how can we, or what could we do to bring them back online when football does start again, that their mental health is as best as we can have it? Could you take that one, please, Craig? Look, you know, I think a lot of children's mental health is, is related to the parents' mental health. And uh, I, I, I truly believe that, um, you know, if, I, if, my, if parents were saying that, I would ask the question first, how are you guys coping? Because children need to be led during this time. And I know a lot of uh, parents might be struggling because they might have uh, difficulties. And that's like how, how the guys, Lucian and Nick said, they've got to reach out, but our kids need to be um, uh, worked with in that and listened to. I think one of the biggest things that we can do to children, and, and I believe we should teach this from a very young age, is, is just basically what, what can we control and what we can't control and to live as simply as possible as a day at a time. We don't know. One of, one of the biggest problems at the moment, people are talking about return to normal. There's never any normal. Everything's always changing and we should, can accept that. But if we look at what is causing that anxiety, it's they're, they're, they're worrying about the future. Let's stay in today. And uh, Ian, that other question you asked about how are we going to get them back into football, well, that's going to be, I think, quite easily because they're going to be very excited about getting back. What we do need to do from just a, a conditioning and uh, injury perspective is that we, we take it easy for uh, a couple of weeks as we lead in, into when we start playing games. And that is going to be an issue because I think training and then games will happen very early. I think we have to just lower our expectations about performance and then just being glad to be back. So... I'm not sure if that actually answers the question, but I, I do feel a lot of the children's anxiety is is related to those leading them, and that's the the parents at the time. So I think we need to need to take that into perspective. But it gets back to control. We don't know when this is going to finish. I think also throughout the history of the world, there's been many occurrences like this. We're very fortunate with what we have, and if we look at Australia, we can still go outside and and uh, and and do things at the park and that sort of stuff. So. That's 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 my uh, sort of focus on that. Could I could I yeah, just add that when you mentioned about the football coming back and that's going to be enough for the kids. Can I just mention that there's two two of our children have actually come back to us today and said that they are really nervous and anxious because what they're hearing from Club World is that they're going to have to play two games a week and they're going to have to do a lot of training to actually get this season completed. So I've got a couple of year 12 students now whose anxiety level has been risen because they have now tried to think, how am I going to play two games a week and study for my VCE? So I think that that's another sort of issue that we just have to be careful of. Yeah, yeah and, and that's, a, that's a great point and that's a great question. And I think what we always need to do is look at things from an individual perspective and that school and the HSU, I mean, those, those kids doing year 12, um, it, it's, a, it's a difficult time for them. And I think we need to lessen that. And that's where sport needs to go, okay, well, you can't play twice a week, you know, from a schooling perspective. Let's just play one time a week. It's not going to penalise you. Let's sit down, let's have the discussions and let's help that child. Because 
year 12 is a, I mean, I've talked about that extensively anyway, that's a problem in itself, what pressure we put on people. And if we add in that, that they've got to play two games a week, sport ultimately at youth level is for enjoyment. Okay, so we've got to make that the sort of situation. So I would encourage coaches to realize that, uh, to take a holistic perspective of, of the people that you're working with and think that there's multi, multiple things in their life other than just football. No, great. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, Craig. I can see the other questions that are, that are listed there, but I might uh, bring Mark Jones into the conversation and welcome, Mark. If you wouldn't mind just outlining the, the recent work that FFA is now doing with, uh, with Black Dog and, uh, and outline uh, the support that now is starting to increase within football for coaches, players and participants. Thanks a lot, Glenn, and thanks for the invite. Um, yes, so obviously in this difficult time of COVID, there's a number of um, areas. You have fear and anxiety regarding the disease. Uh, you have the social isolation, and one of the greatest human needs is connection. And obviously that has suffered significantly in this period. So we have certain mental illnesses, trauma arising out of that. There's the massive economic impact that it's had on people's lives, which will carry through for quite a significant time. And again, one of the other human needs is certainty in life. And COVID has brought this massive uncertainty towards us. And now we're facing a period where all the talk is about reintegrating back into supposedly normal life. And we are creatures of habit. Uh, and so there's anxieties regarding that. As people said, I'm fearful of resuming the sport. I'm fearful of doing this. And so, so it's a difficult time. So a week and a bit ago, FFA announced a partnership with the Black Dog Institute. And that was something that I had been looking at most probably about a year ago. And it was primarily sparked by the incident of two youth suicides in one of the clubs that my youngest boy plays for down here in the Illawarra. And that was quite sad. And obviously looking at what kind of mental support was there for the, for the football community as a whole, and it was lacking. So we identified, well, we did some research and we identified Black Dog Institute as fitting FFA's approach. They're an internationally renowned mental health organization. Um, with their research that they do, they, they're well known for applying it practically uh, to, to their strategies and policies, etc. So we signed off an agreement. We're about to put content up over the next couple of weeks. And the good thing about it is that the content that we will provide through the FFA website via Black Dog will be accessible to the whole football community. So it's to the community level, uh, the parents, the volunteers, the children, the youth. It will apply to elite sport, the coaches, the staff as well. So everyone will have access to the same resources. So for us, we're very excited about that opportunity. It was an opportune time during this COVID to accelerate that partnership. And so again, for me, obviously there is a lot of doom and gloom around COVID, but as we often say, out of adversity, there's opportunity and growth. So this for me was one instance where, where that was highlighted. So from support for our players and staff during this period of time, and just in general, and Craig will be aware we've worked together um, throughout a cycle, a World Cup cycle, and so we have aspects where we support the staff 
and plays quite significantly with the players. There's monitoring, there's Craig would have run plays numerous times and it's still happening now, as you said, by our, the remaining high performance staff. Coaches still touch base with players, seeing how they're going. We have, at FFA presently, we do have a, a full-time psychologist who is allocated also to the Matildas to tour with them. We have a, a health, well-being, mental and emotional agility coach that um, Graham Arnold brought into the Socceroos. And they're there for various aspects of, of mental well-being. And they provide education to our juniors in conjunction with our development manager. And so the emphasis primarily from the coaches at the moment within our organisation is on team performance and creating a, a specific team culture. Uh, so primarily education group sessions with also some scope to do some individual counselling or treatment as required. We have collaboration with the PFA. For me, um, and in my experience in a long time that I've been involved with soccer since 2006, um, is that the coach sets the team culture. Um, he has to manage a lot of personalities, has to have specific communication skills and requires definitive support from his staff. Glenn, you did ask me earlier today about the difficulties of the travel that we do, the time away, and yes, that can be difficult um, being away from our families, but one of the most common comments that you will find from all of us that have been involved in sport, particularly Australian football, is that it's, it's our second family. It really does feel like a second family for us. And that comes back to that point of that connection or that sense of belonging or community. And I know within the Socceroos, the players, the staff, we've all felt that sense of belonging and community, which is really important that we can, we can gain from sport. So as a lead into my story, I'll go back to the time then when I was, I was working in NRL. I had 16 consecutive years in NRL. It's Illawarra Steelers, St. George Illawarra, back in the 90s, early 2000. In the off season, I would travel. In 98, I volunteered to, to go over and work with Mother Teresa in Calcutta. I'd been working part-time in Indigenous Health in Australia. And so I went to Calcutta and it was an amazing experience, very rewarding, life-changing, obviously. Uh, I worked in the home for the sick and the dying. And it was a massive paradise. In, in, the, in the streets, people were dying in the streets. There were railway stations where the Bangladeshis would come from Dakar, thinking they were looking for a better life, would collapse on the platforms and people would be walking over them commuting to work and these people would be dying. But there was an amazing sense of community from the locals, from the volunteers, just from everyone involved. And, and obviously Craig, you've worked overseas and, and that, like you said, in other cultures, there's often this sense of community. Often we don't feel here in, in the Western world, that dislocation. And that's been more accentuated in this COVID period. When I returned home, when you've had experiences that have been in your face um, and you haven't had anyone that's shared similar experiences or not a lot of people, it's difficult to describe. And I remember at that time when I came back to the start of that season, the club chaplain at the Dragons at the time asked me what it was like. And I was feeling that sense of isolation. But what really stood out for me was that feeling of community and family that I felt within that rugby league club at the time. And it highlighted for me what you can find in sport by setting up that culture, setting up that, that team, 
and what we can do to provide for each other. And I've found that to this current period of time is that it's been there right throughout my career in sport. And, and the importance of a coach to set that culture and, to, and support staff to assist. So before I, I conclude, the, the mental health issues that we're dealing in elite sport, we've all touched upon that we have the same issues that the normal population will have, relationship issues or whatever, and then we have to deal with those and then still perform. There are sports specific, and all the coaches here would know, performance anxiety, the player that comes off in the second half of cramps, um, consistently at the same point of every match and it's purely related to anxiety when the going gets tough. Illness behaviour, no different to workers' comp situation where a person might have an injury but has underlying psychological stressors and the injury gets catastrophized. And in sport we have to determine are they fit to play, are they fit to perform then beyond that. Issues with non-selection, acute where it might have an impact, the player's disgruntled, um, it has an impact on the culture we're trying to create and the chronic aspect on that player himself. He's not getting game time. Uh, how does he feel? The depressive aspect, his lack of self-worth. And maybe the player's current circumstances and coaches will be in this situation, as Craig said, living overseas, isolated, where's my next contract, uncertainty, um, interactions with the coach and the player. Um, impending transfers, as we said, and, and the other aspect is the sleep and recovery, which is so important. So I suppose for me to conclude, I think within mental health, there are some inherent aspects that, 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 that people do show, coaches and players. Um, one of the most recent stories, where I was talking to one of our players at the Socceroos, talking to him about how did he feel about taking a penalty to get his team into the EPL. And he just said, well, look, I don't like taking penalties. I don't like it at all. But I feel I was the best player in my team at doing so. And if I didn't take that penalty and we lost, I would have blamed myself. So I need to be accountable. I needed to take responsibility. And so for me, there's certain lessons in that. And in my time in mental health and sport, in my earlier days, I also was involved with the Australian athletics teams. And there was an instance where... We had an athlete when we were on our four-week tour to North America with the major tournament at the end, and she had the habit of stepping off track when the going got tough. The sports psychologist was very good, worked with her. By the time the final came, which she'd qualified for, he'd said, look, she's fine. Everything's, she'll be okay. We've worked well. She'll, be, she'll, she'll survive this. Came to the final. After the first lap, she stepped off the track again. So four weeks' worth of work, and it came to nothing. And I suppose my experience within sport has led me to look at that and say, well, look, yes, there can be a role for sports psychology as treating reactive or crises, but in some other instances, as coaches might attest as well, it can perpetuate a person's condition or behaviour. So for me, I look at mental health and illness and look at strategies that can change a person's behaviour. Um, and that work being done outside of the team in those 10 days you might be with them. So things like mindfulness and, as Craig said, being in the now. And for me, over my period of time, I, I believe football is one of the toughest careers that exists. There's rejection at every level. You might make it into an A-League squad and rarely get game time. You might do well at an A-League squad and get into the rep, rep profile. You're in the top 50 that we're monitoring at the Socceroos at the moment. But when it comes to a World Cup qualifier, it gets cut to 35, you're 15 of those that gets told, no, you're not good enough. 
You get into the 35, you go to the World Cup, we pick 30. Three get dropped off along the way before we go overseas. Another four get kicked out in Brazil or when we get to Russia. So there's always rejection at every level, being told you're not good enough and, and that impact on that person's self-worth or, or their psyche. So you make the World Cup, you don't get game time. There's players that have made two World Cups and never played a game in the World Cup. So it's a very difficult area for coaches and for players. And so in my belief, yes, when we, when we look at the health of a person, as, we're, as we all acknowledge here today, it's the, the pillars of physical, mental, emotional and spiritual well-being. And so it's great that we're having this awareness um, within sport because it's not just isolated to the general community. Thanks very much, Mark, for that, and uh, very insightful. And um, I'm sure that SEA looks forward to working very closely with FFA as we develop support for coaches moving forward. Uh, thanks to everybody who's been um, engaging on the chat room as well, uh, from Ronnie Smith, Joey Peters, Deirdre, um, and, uh, and John Cosmina. Um, there's a couple of questions there which we'll save till the end of the, the session. Uh, so if I could just throw back to you, Lucian. Uh, for the next part of the presentation. Thanks, uh, thanks, Glenn. Um, let's just shrink down my. Okay, so we, I guess we're coming to the bit that's the the high pressure and high performance environments, and and again, this is this is modelled through my own experience in the lens of the the hospitality industry and cooking, and having to put something out there every day that's. Uh, that's referenced. So the daily impacts, doubt, negative self-talk, um, they're all there, self-medication, aggression, intensity, joy, fear, overcoming setbacks, sadness. We mentioned earlier, loneliness, going away and finishing the end of the day and just feeling so alone. It's a bit like the illustration, the, the face outwardly looking is, is, is there, but the, but the kid inside is, is with his bear and he's crying or he's not sure where to go. So I thought I'd frame it in, in as a leader, and I've, I've sort of led everywhere from myself to one or two people to to a hundred people in, in a cross-functional um, space where I've got leaders and direct reports. And my pre-lived experience essentially was was filled with a mixture of things: so doubt and uncertainty, and second guessing, um, that perpetual niggling, the self-talk, the picking out my failings, nothing ever good enough, but but that responding outwardly as uh, as aggression, more verbally so, and, and being argumentative, um, external pressures, pressures to reacting to things, and you know the need to get it all done, and the need to just be there to be finished, and it never finishes. Um, Self-medication. I mean, my two big ones, alcohol and chocolate. That was they were my go-to's, and not so much anymore. Um, intensity, massive, high peaks. You get that. That's the thing. It's what we do it for, right? The the joy and the excitement, that nervous energy, the cortisol, the, the cloud nine moment, that's that winning, that sense of doing something. But then you then you fall very quickly back into your anxiety and your fear and overcoming the setbacks and scared and overly future or past focused. Did we go as well as I thought we did? How are we going to go in the next round? What's my next dinner service going to be like? Sleep, we, we, we nailed sleep. I was a classic example, living on four or five hours of sleep a night. In the, in the food industry, I'd go to bed at three and I'd get up at 6.30 or seven. And I did that for years when I was working double shifts and, and we talk about acuity and mental focus and our ability in, in good decision-making outcomes. Often we, we're very outcomes focused, but often good, good outcomes don't mean we make good decisions. We've just got lucky. The quality of our decisions becomes more and more important. 
sadness, post high feeling flat, depleted and down. You hear about it all the time. Chefs win awards, um, very high suicide rate. Athletes, likewise, talk to an Olympian, the journey of Olympians after a, a gold medal experience. Um, loneliness, who to talk to, fear of displaying a lack of knowledge, resistance to ask for help. All of those things are my lived experience as a, as a pre-heart attack um, and life events guy, as Craig said, best things that have ever happened to me. So what have I done to change that? And how has my world changed? Um, I'm more present and I'm grounded. I walk 10 Ks a day religiously, 70 Ks a week. I meditate religiously for 30 minutes a day. I mean, there's different ways of doing that. But for me, it's finding that inner peace and that stillness. Um, I'm getting better at accepting criticism. Um, hopefully my wife agrees with me there. If she's, she's online somewhere, um, it still hurts. I'm a lot more committed to my self-care, um, therapy, looking after myself, sleep hygiene. Um, and I wanted to grow, so I've had to align my values. Like professional development has got to be around my values. So hence I'm undertaking my counseling course amongst other things because it will give me skills. Um, and, in, and in the demand-driven environment, the world where we've got to be something else, we can be competitive, but we can't be cruel in my view. You can scream, you can shout in the, in the heat of the moment. You can, you can do that but that person's got to know they're safe with you. And, and, and I think Greg Popovich from the San Antonio Spurs is a classic there where he knows everything about every player. He takes them out for a feed. He, he gets, sends them the menus and the wine labels. The stories are infamous about how he can be a firecracker, but he's so well-loved and he's so well-loved his players. Um, none of us are perfect. I'm still having bad days. I'm a perpetual work in progress. The challenges are still there. Um, Work's really important to me, both the stuff I get paid for and the stuff that I, um, I guess pro bono is the word that I'm doing and, and gravitating towards, but family more so. Um, my kids and my wife and, and then my extended family in Sydney and across the seas. Um, but my one piece of advice to everybody, if you're of an age and you're a middle-aged guy, go get your blood checked. Go see how you're going. Check in on your health. Do it. Don't wait for the surprise. Don't wait for the surprise is, is, is the one takeaway for this for, for, for all of us. Even if your mental health is sound, you know, get into the GP and get the bloods done. It, it might possibly save you a trip in an ambulance or even worse. Um, what changed and why did it change? To get better, I had to accept and address and display my vulnerabilities. I had to put it out there. This is a big forum, but I've had to put it out there repeatedly. So I use the term vulnerability and it's getting a heap of airplay at the moment, which, and I'm not going to, apologize for using the word again because I think the more that we use it um, the more important so I pulled up the definition for one of the, the, the Collins definition the quality of state of being exposed to the possibility of being attacked or harmed either physically or emotionally I don't see anywhere in that definition and you'll find them but I don't see the mention of weakness in fact it takes courage and pride and effort um, to do it and more of us should be doing it is, is what I say so uh, how does vulnerability work and what does the display look like? And what does it do? In a team environment, and the biggest thing I've found from the old leader to the new leader for me is it displays an understanding. It shows that I know what's going on with my people. I meet them as people first and then their occupation second, person first, athlete second, person first, coach second. It builds a connection. Um, connection delivers trust. And then trust creates environmental psychological safety. A few words there, but it talks to the Greg Popovich story. I know you're unhappy with me. I know you're going to go off, but I know you've got my back. Um, better well-being for all and share positive outcomes. As I say, we can have the moments, but we get the victories out of this. We get them together. 
um, jumping through these are these I do little doodles I post on Instagram and I and I do things for myself and, and try to ground myself when I'm trying to resettle so I've got six quick ones here so a couple for me a couple for the team and then a couple for all of us so you know I, I say to myself around the mindfulness think take time to think about what I'm thinking about because the clarity of my thought or the rabbit hole of my thoughts will determine how I'm responding and how I'm getting getting through my day or, or reflecting on others um, leaders build bridges, not walls. We've got to remember we can't brick ourselves in. We need to build a bridge. We build a bridge for our team. We build a bridge for our people to the next stage of their development. But, and Craig mentioned it, high-performance workers, high-performance coaches, are you building bridges to the next best version of you? It's the guy, guy or the girl that you take home for your family and, and want to see that. Um, for the team, best way to tackle a big problem, same way we're an elephant, right? We can't get down. You do it piece by piece. We do it on game time. We do it in pitch formats. We do it in tactical analysis, clipping this, clipping that, looking at it. But, you know, when we get a big problem, a big existential problem, sometimes we get avoid, uh, overwhelmed. Um, another one, avoid organisational fatigue. Don't let your team get tired. At the moment, there's a, there's a critical period in sport. In, in the A-League, I know, I'm a, and I'm a huge fan of what the guys do in the A-League and a huge fan of local football as well as international this is massive for your players. It's massive for you. The expectation is you're going to go back on a pitch in a period of uncertainty to deliver a product, which is your craft, your sport. Um, you need to be restful, refreshed, and regroup regularly, connected and chatting. I, I maintain that there might be some upsets because the guys that have managed this period best at a, at, a, at a connection, coaching, and player level and have looked after themselves might be the ones that come out of the blocks better. And, and there might be a few surprises, which hopefully from a fan and a spectator's point of view, it makes the end of the, the run-in exciting. Um, control the controllables and move on. You, you know, my biggest learning, you can't change what happened. You can only do, like, only what you do next. You can reflect on it. You can run yourself into the ground, but you can't change it. You can only change and become the better version of you tomorrow. Learn from it, reflect on it, but don't dwell on it. And then the big one, the, the, the big one, we're not perfect. We don't always get it right. We don't have all the answers. Your team know that. Trying to tell them that you do is, is, is they see through it mainly a lot of the time. Kids say it to me, we're going through repetition. We're going through routine. So when we've got a problem, sit in the mess with your team. It's not always perfect. And sit and pause and reflect and regroup. Regroup as people. People first, athlete second. Get that connection going. And then from there, Essentially, you reach a point where, you know, the takeout for me before I throw back to Nick for a slide and then, then into um, his pieces. Um, how can we help our, our own and others' well-being in a high-performance and pressure environment? And we've got to remember gratitude is massive. And when we help other people and we give to other people, we reward ourselves. There's a reciprocity there that comes back to us. So using um, loosely the, the, the algae from the mental health first aid space observe and help other people if you see them struggling approach the person there's moments you're with your guys and people all the time you can sense a difference if they're a bit down ask the question start the conversation but when you ask the question and you start the conversation be available and make time to listen actively and don't judge it's their story it's their moment we so quickly think, well, it wouldn't bother me, wouldn't bother them. But to that person, it's really important at that moment in time and to judge um, and to try and come up to solutions, as, as Dr. Deirdre said, um, it, it, it shuts it down. Let them talk. They just want to hear. They want to see someone that cares. Remember our responsibility to others. 
is to give support and information uh, and encourage others when you've done that piece to essentially seek appropriate help. If that helps, professional help, then guide them in, in your environments. You've got great people um, like Mark at the FFA, Craig's there. You've got your own medics within the teams and your own player welfare and psych support in the clubs, direct them to them and yourselves as well. This is not, this is not just about the players. This is what we've talked about, the coaches and Craig said, that, like, seek out people. Um, bounce me a message. Everybody's welcome to send me a message for a chat. I'm not a clinician. I'm not an expert, but I've, I've had a bit of life. And, and to use my favourite or my favourite since I was four years old in a club that's very close to me, um, and Ian Dowie came back very famously when they got promoted back in 03, 04 and said, um, you know, we've gone from the edge of relegation over a season to promotion and it's all down to our bounce back ability which again found its way into the dictionary. The ability to recover after a setback, especially in sports, that talks essentially um, to resilience. And for me, that's, that's really, that's me, that's my story, that's what I've done. Um, I hope it's resonated with you. Uh, I hope it hasn't gone on too long. And I'm gonna throw over to Nick and just say, thank you so much for the forum and the opportunity to share it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Where you go, Nick. Great, thanks, Lucy. And, and just to quickly finish up for this section, um, we've just got a slide here on uh, mental health as a continuum. So it's um, just worth noting, you know, if you look at one end, you've got people that are mentally unwell and actually need need help, need to go and see a psychologist, get that actual, take action and get help because they're in that state. And um, then at the other end, you've got people that are mentally healthy and hopefully thriving on, you know, is where we all want to get to. But um, the interesting thing is that most people sort of sit in the middle um, and just above having a mental health issue. So not necessarily a diagnosable issue, but we're just sort of coping and we're just getting through. And um, I mean, it's hard because life um, throws so many things at us and it's hard to, you know, as has been talked about tonight, it's really difficult to do things that are healthy for us uh, when there's so much pressure and we have so much responsibility and so many things to get done every day. Uh, but that's detrimental to our well-being. So it's being aware of that and looking, okay, well, what maybe there might be 10 things I want to change. If I look at those 10 things, what's the number one most important thing to me? And just make that non-negotiable. So I'm going to find a way to, I'm going to communicate that to my family, to at work. I'm going to find a way to make sure that this one area that I need to do, it might just be something as simple as I need to get more sleep. I don't get enough sleep. I don't have enough you know, routine or rigidity around that and I need that so I can function better. How can you, you know, navigate that? Because otherwise we just end up compounding and, you know, creating more negative habits and it, it, it's detrimental to our longevity in health, to our performance, to our careers, to our family, to, you know, it has that follow-on effect. And, um, you know, also reminding ourselves that it's okay to have ups and downs. No one's happy all the time. No one's perfect. Actually, life is difficult and we're all going to have difficulties. So it's identifying between the two. Am I, is this just a struggle of the actual challenge of life or am I struggling to the point where I need to make that change? So it's just being aware of it. So I'll um, hand, hand it back for uh, panel comments and then I, we've got you know one more section to go through after that. Thanks very much, Nick. Um, and once again, it's great having expert panelists on board because they're monitoring the chat room. Thanks very much, Deidre. And great conversation going between Cozzy um, and Joey there on the chat for those who are following it in addition to, to listening. Um, 
If uh, Gary Cole, if I could call you off, you had a question a little while ago, if you wouldn't mind coming off mute to ask that. Yeah, really for Craig or, or the whole panel, we're, um, the world of high performance is an interesting one because we play each week and there's a result each week. As a result, result of that, there's like this performance review that goes on weekly, sometimes within ourselves, certainly within in the club, certainly within the board. Uh, my experience was with family and friends as well. So it's very, very different from the real world where people might get an annual review or a six-monthly review, or if you're in business, you might be reviewing financials on a monthly basis. I just wondered if Craig's got any advice or the panel, any advice that how, how we help high-performance coaches at, at all levels, head coaches, strength conditioning, et cetera, deal with that week-in, week-out grind of being continually a good coach this week uh, and a bad coach next week based on the results. <laughs> That's, That's a, a really good one. <laughs> and I, and I, I spent some great time with you, Gary Cole. So <laughs> we, we, we both know that um, is, a, is an interesting one. And uh, look, I, I, think it, I think it starts in an actual fact when I, I work with students on this. I think you first have to sit down and go, okay, what lifestyle do I want? That's the first thing, and, and, and Mark talked about that as well. Basically, to identify what lifestyle you want, and then you have a look at sport and you go, okay, well, the job security isn't there, the pressure is there, and I could be away from home. So you, you know what you're getting yourself into. I think, Gary, what I, I learned very much was about control and what I could control and what I can't control. And I know um, in my later years, I've really understood that, that our job is to to get the players as healthy as possible for the coach and the players to actually work their magic as, as much as they can. I think we, I think all organizations have to look from the start and look at their recruitment. So if you start with recruitment and you really, really understand the recruitment process, then you're going to recruit a, a coach or staff for a certain reason. And then that's going to take time um, for them to develop. I fully get the results sort of situation, but when you look at you, you look at competitions around the world that have high turnover of coaches, it, it's not going to be successful uh, really long term. And interesting enough, you look at the American sports that have lower turnover. I think AFL has lower turnover of coaches. So there's there's something in that 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 looking at from a, a little bit more of a long term perspective. I think in football we need to to get much better in respect to the recruitment process. I think the, the recruitment in, in football isn't, isn't done uh, properly. And then that's why maybe a lot of the time there is that turnover. But if you ask me the question from a mental health perspective, I think as we have to understand the lifestyle that we're getting into um, and to, that it isn't a long-term existence in wherever you are, uh, someone once said to me, you know, there's two types of people in this, in professional sport, those that have been sacked and those that will be sacked. So <laughs> I understand that. And, and I think Deidre said it too, in respect to the players, it's to not have your identity embedded in sport. Um, and, and I think you touched on it very well there. How can you be a fantastic football manager or football coach or a doctor or physio or sports scientist one, one week or one year and then all of a sudden you're, you're sacked the next year? So it is just part of the process. I think the bigger picture is that we want to change that. 
we want it to be more. I see some comments there from Cosy about more as a business. I think I think we if things were run uh, business wise a little bit more in support, particularly in respect to the performance area, the the coaching and that, and the part, as far as recruitment and support of those people long term, we'd be better off. Cheers, Craig. Well handled, mate. Yeah. Uh, John Cosmina, John, would you? I noticed you've been uh, engaging in conversation there and talking about how sport has changed since it has become a business and you've been involved at both ends. Uh, would you be happy to come on and make a comment on the question that was asked by Gary? The question. You there, mate? Yeah, you got me? Yeah, we got you. Yeah, what was your question again, guys? It's about the weekly, <laughs> the weekly assessment of your performance and uh, the pressure that puts on you um, on a week-to-week -week basis as a as a coach, being obviously uh, assessed by the media, being assessed by you know, your board on a week-to-week -week basis. Just uh, how that pressure builds up in the, in the business of sport. Well, it, it obviously it builds up a lot if you're not getting the results. And then you start to, I mean, I, I firmly believe you've got to have a sports about being successful in sports about having a process and you've got to focus on the process and not the outcome. But, you know, if you're not getting the results you want or if they're not happening quick enough for say your chairman's liking or the media get on your case or, you know, someone, someone's missing out as a player and they're not getting a game. So the pressure does start to build. And then if you start to change things um, and you're not getting the results, then it really starts to build up and it can, it can grind you down. It can be really, really bad. And you can almost feel, a, you can feel a, the pressure of the, the train coming down a tunnel towards you. It's, you know it's about to run you over. I think Ernie sort of talked a little bit about that last week. Yeah. Who did, who did you use for support in that environment for yourself, John? Uh, I would talk to... <laughs> You'd have a, I've always tried to have an assistant that you could put a lot of faith in or someone within the, the, the closed environment of the team and the, 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 the football itself that you could put a lot of faith in. If you haven't had that, I mean, I used, outside of that, I'd talk to my wife. She's my best mate in that regard. And she's got to put a lot of perspective on things because, I mean, Craig made a very valid point. Don't let um, your, your sport be your identity. And you've got to be able to step out of that that bubble that you're in, in professional, in a high performance professional environment. Uh, thanks very much, John. Um, Nick, do you want to bring this session ahead? Sure thing. Um, so yeah, I won't spend too much time on this. I mean, so much has been discussed tonight and I think so many, you know, incredible points have been touched on. So this is really just a summary and um, an overview about mental health masterclass that Lucien and myself are, are working on. So I just want to say thank you to everyone for, first of all, for all of the amazing discussion and contribution to, to this session and for having us uh, take part in it. Um, Mental Health Masterclass is a program that we developed a, a bit over a year ago. And um, really it came about from being in this industry, in this area for a long time. Um, I've been involved in doing a lot of corporate um, behavior change work, uh, predominantly running seminars. Um, outside of that, I've built different um, tech products such as apps and tools like that. But the gap that I've seen is there's still not enough just really good, accessible, scalable education. So sort of something in between. Um, so really what we did with this was we just teamed up with a, 
um, film production company uh, and wanted to make really good quality, engaging content uh, with the best teachers that we could get access to and making it very practical and having very simple tools that come with it. So it's got workbooks and behavior change printout tools that, that cover a whole lot of areas so from you know developing new habits to um, gratitude lists and different things like that. But the videos cover a whole range of areas from storytelling and how we can do that to overcoming, to dealing with anxiety, um, overcoming adversity. Um, and we've got here, you know, starting conversations, managing stress, dealing with fear. Um, and each episode we have a, a different uh, expert related to that topic. Um, so the one on overcoming adversity, we've got Wayne Schwoss in that. We've got a guy called Tansel Ali in the one around um, anxiety. We have different psychologists. We've got a resident psychologist who's in every module, um, Dr. Richard Chambers, and he really sums up what's talked about. Um, I'm hosting it, so I'm really there. I'm not. I'm a mental health advocate. I'm not a psychologist. The content's been developed with psychologists, so I'm essentially the host delivering that. Um, so it's really a, a one-stop resource, just that um, anyone can view. And uh, we feel that is critical really because it's very difficult to get this information out to the masses in a quality way um, and to make these changes it, it is about doing things that are accessible I mean we all probably know things that we can do or should do but we don't often do them and and a lot of the time we can actually become overwhelmed and it has an adverse um, we have an adverse reaction if we're given too much to do or things that aren't practical so really this is all about practicality about what is it that we can actually fit into our schedule everyone's different everyone's at a different level what what's the change we can make what's something that is going to be applicable and really a huge amount of this comes down to habit formation i i believe you know creating habits in anything you know you want to be a professional athlete if you can't work at that daily and create good habits and good routines you're probably not going to succeed and that goes for everything in life and especially for you know improving our mental well-being comes down to what how do we make these behaviors things that we do every day and make them effortless so they just become part of what we do the same as eating sleeping and everything else um, so how do you access it this is a, a digital program um, it's very simple to, to access we have it on uh, a online system and basically we send out a login um, as we have in this situation and once you're, you're in it, these can be viewed as long as you're basic from any device, a phone, a tablet, computer, it doesn't matter. Um, as long as you've got internet access, we do have an option where you can actually download the whole program to use offline as well. So it's very simple to use. And as I said before, it's 10 modules with workbooks and toolkits that come with it. But it's also not there. It's about two and a half hours, um, a bit under two and a half hours of video content. It's not there to be viewed as just a one-off um, and then you know, you're done with it. It's really there to be, to be consumed and to get you thinking and then to be revisited over and over again and to use the tools. And you, know, you might watch it and think, okay, I've identified here what I really want to work on is my anxiety. I'm going to go back to that module. I'm going to go to the toolkits. I'm going to spend the next month or two months working on this one specific thing around my anxiety and then come back and you know, keep repeating that. So it's there as an ongoing resource and it's also there to spark conversation and, you know, help other people, um, help help make that community change. We've got it um, running in a, in a sporting organisation at the moment um, called Basketball New South Wales, and they've got it for 
a, a big group of their elite athletes and they're finding a lot of benefit out of that. And I think this is really applicable to the sporting world. Um, and we're really passionate about it for all the reasons we've spoken about tonight. So, you know, that's a bit of a summary of the, of the program. Um, and yeah, just finishing up, you know, on, on here, you know, I, I think the key point really is um, no one's above mental health. We all need to just create that conversation, create the awareness and be there to help each other and understand that, you know, as was talked about, we're in a situation right now in um, with the coronavirus where there's a lot of uncertainty and it's bringing up issues, but that doesn't mean when that goes away, things are just going to automatically be good again, you know, or okay, we need to do the work ourselves because there's no certainty in anything in life. But we, so we need to look at what can I control? Try and not get caught up in worrying about the things we can't control and just focus on what we can. Um, and yeah, just finally, we've got here, where can I get help? Here's some online resources. Um, there's a whole lot. These are just a couple for mental health. There's ones for addiction, financial um, hardship. And if you don't know where to go, you can actually just Google mental health resource online, mental health help, helplines. It'll come up with a whole range of different resources. So really it is the one, the one, the thing I always say is the one thing you shouldn't do if you are suffering or you know someone that's suffering is do nothing. Just take, just do something. Often taking that first step is the hardest point. So just do something, whether it is telling a friend, whether it is going anonymously and calling a helpline, uh, you know, take that first point of, of action and the rest normally is unfolds from, from there. Nick and Lucian, I'd like to thank you very much for, for coming on tonight. Um, Absolutely. Just, just to let the coaches know that, uh, you know, this is hopefully a start of a, you know, a long partnership with Mental Health Masterclass uh, for Football Coaches Australia. They have provided um, 100 memberships to their masterclass, which will be making available to coaches. Uh, we'll be sending out an expression of interest for coaches who might want to take that on board. Uh, I noticed that Terry, our friend Terry McFlynn over in Western Australia is on board. I want to thank Terry for introducing um, Mental Health Masterclass uh, to FCA. Um, for those who engage with Terry, he'd be able to tell you the story of how he's used Mental Health Masterclass with the Perth Glory Academy players. Um, and uh, it's one that we look to replicate with our coaches.